Now, how many of you guys read this section? I think it deals with 29 to 39. Okay. 29 to 39. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, that was really good. That was good. Okay, so what we're talking about is the modern paradigm. And he starts with a few um, a few different things. Uh, gen you know, he starts with, first off, creation. So, before the modern period, so, and I, you always have to be careful with me. I think that um, modern literature was written, <coughs> like, when I say new literature, I mean anything after the 17th century. <laughs> so, when I say modern history, I'm referring to, like, things like the Reformation. Uh, not just World War One, World War Two. So the modern paradigm came about. Do you guys know usually what what is the cutoff point in history of, between the modern and the pre-modern? Eighteen hundreds. Nope, earlier than that. Really? The Enlightenment. Okay, that boogeyman. There's an end in there. Okay, so we're dealing with post-Enlightenment thought. So pre-enlightenment, if you go back and you're talking to Luther, you're talking to Anselm, you're talking to these guys, what, would, what was their view of creation? What did they it's think? It was all biblical. Right? It was all biblical, but be more specific. Seven days, perhaps. Yeah, seven days. Oh, right. Yeah, God created it. Right, what we now call the seven-day literal uh, young earth creation. Okay, ex nihilo, that's another. Nihilo. Let's just spell that one. Out of nothing, God made everything. He did it in seven liberal days, 24 hour days, and it's all good. Now, no, these all these extra things that we used to define it are all modern. They didn't used to have to articulate it this way. Yeah. Right. You know, they would just say creation according to God. Now, the struggle in modern times is usually creation has a lot to do with it. So in Christianity, how many different views? Like, what are some of the different views of creation in the modern Christian church? Some think that the seven days could be viewed as a thousand days because yep. God views it that way. He can look at a day as a thousand days and a thousand days as one yeah, day. Yeah, the day-age problem. Yeah. Is, day, is a day a day? Is a day a thousand years? Is a day an hour? Is a day a million years? So what this leads to is something called deistic evolution, and that is that, and this was C.S. Lewis's point of uh, his opinion when, when he wrote the book The Problem of Pain. He actually goes in there and describes theistic evolution. So he, he, he ties the two things together. God created the world, and over a long period of time, man evolved. And the world that you see evolved. And then what happens is, as time goes on is that it gets, the eight, like a day gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and shorter until it's a day. So, deistic evolution is one of them. Um, are there any other Christian views? Is it called deistic or theistic evolution? Well, deistic or evolution is where... Is it? Yeah. God just set the process in order and, and was not involved. Kind of like the... Yeah. Is there another one called theistic evolution? There's so many. I don't even know. Yeah. Theistic evolution? Oh, okay. I think it's real similar. It's just the... It's just we... You, God was involved? You're like a... God started it, but then the process took... Took over millions. It might just have to do with uh, where where they stand on the theological side, like yeah, because like deism is the idea that God just wound up the clock and right. set it on the mantle right. and let it rip. Uh -huh. 
so if you're a true deist, you wouldn't really believe much of the Bible, right? Is yeah. Because God is very involved with his people. In the yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, th these are all, again, modern things. Yeah. Before, right, pre-modern, before the Enlightenment, you simply just had the one view of creation. And, and you couldn't really have any other worldview apart from this. You can't have a worldview saying there's no God, no moral absolutes, because you, right, you have this pesky thing called creation. So this is why, ultimately, Darwin is so important to the progressive secular worldview. He gave them the missing link. He gave them the thing they needed, and that was a creation story that they could work with. And, and um, you know, it's kind of hard to say which one is the most dangerous, but without Darwinism, you have no, you have no origins. So you have to have origins. Now, Darwinism is the idea, you know, that um, you, know, you start with uh, small organisms that, what was it, it's chance, what is it, is it chance plus time? Plus survival fittest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plus will, you know, equals whatever. So if you just give something long enough and it's determined, if it has enough determination, uh, and, and a little bit of luck, then it will survive. And so this this is like a not a top-down way of looking at it, it's a bottom-up way of looking at it. So the major influences in the world before the Enlightenment, before Darwin came along, were, were what, right? Why is classical Christianity so important to some of us? Because before, what you had was Plato and... The Bible. Okay? So these two things, there's different ways of talking about them. Platonic uh, philosophy is very important to understand. If you don't understand Plato, it's very difficult to understand Western civilization. The Bible, obviously, so this is called Hellenism. Okay? That's another way of, of saying Plato. Because within the Greek world, everything is essentially based off of Plato. Aristotle is there too, but he always is this guy. It's kind of funny how Aristotle is. His views are sort of, they pop up for a while and they're in vogue and then they go away. Plato kind of always is the one everyone's talking about. Now, Plato's view of uh, creation and the universe, you guys, have you heard of this? Plato's forms? You guys know what those are? Anybody? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, yeah. You did like links to links to like a higher reality so you kind of participate right by step to degree. yeah so every chair that exists is a shadow of the true and perfect essence of chairness that exists somewhere out there okay and Plato's cave this is the idea where say we're all in this cave and we're looking at, at a wall and we see a chair well, what it really is is just a shadow of a chair. Behind us, somebody's holding a chair up in front of the fire, the perfect chair, and all we see is the shadow of the chair. So everything that you see is a shadow of its pure, true existence, essence, that exists somewhere. So, um, and you see this, like in C.S. Lewis, he talks about it. He talks about the fact that, you know, when, when they go to heaven in the last battle they go to a Narnia and then from, from they go further up and further into a new Narnia and they go and they get deeper and closer and deeper and closer to the essence of what Narnia really is. Every Narnia more beautiful than the last. <laughs> now um, 
this idea has, has come into Christian theology because uh, the argument goes that everything, every, the perfect essence of everything exists in the mind of God. Okay? And so the, this world, the platonic um, way of looking at it is like this world is just vaporous. And it doesn't really exist. It's just his words. The, the perfect existence of everything is in his mind. And everything that we see is a shadow of what's in his mind. So, you know, you go too far with that kind of thing, it becomes heretical pretty quickly. So, but, um, so Platonic philosophy, Hellenism, the Greek world, plus the Bible, these were the massive influences pre-enlightenment. Okay, so the, the medieval man had to reconcile um, all the glorious, beautiful things the classical world gave us with the truths of Scripture. And that's how you get Christendom. That's how you get the Middle Ages. Uh, that's how you get people like Anselm and Augustine. Um, you get all the advances in literature. You get Dante because they took the classical world and the Christian world and they reconciled them. So unsettling that, okay, if you, the, the Christendom in, in the Middle Ages unified these things, uh, harmonized them. So the disharmony now is the fact that we've pulled them apart. Um, these are no longer the major influences. Now, even Plato had a top-down view of the world, right? Every, every, there's a perfect essence in heaven, and we are looking at the mere shadow. The Bible, right, God, in the beginning was God, and everything proceeds from them. So the Arche and the Logos, in this worldview, is very easy to reconcile. You can explain this, okay? So what, what they've done is pulled all of this apart, and what they wanted was a, instead of a top-down Worldview. They wanted a bottom-up worldview. Now, why would men want a bottom-up worldview? Because it gets rid of God. It gets rid of God because who's at the bottom? We are. <laughs> right? So if it's a bottom-up worldview, then what you do is if you invert it, man is actually at the top. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the idea, this is why in that hideous strength, what they want is they, they're these scientists who are into all this crazy, this modern paradigm, they, they're making themselves into gods. That's what they express. That's what they say they're doing. So this bottom-up worldview is seen in a couple of the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I like to call them. Um, these particular gentlemen. Darwin is one of them. He gave them the missing piece. Can you guys name another one? Nietzsche. Marx. Marx. Freud. Freud. Okay, now can you guys, if you've read this or you just know, how have each of these men demonstrate a bottom-up worldview? They harnessed this yeah. Darwinian idea and they applied it, each of them, in their own fields. Freud did it with, with the mind, essentially, that yeah. our advanced kind of intellectual capability comes from just real deep, dark, kind of um, primitive... Yeah. These primitive uh, urges. Urges, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Like this desire. This right. desire in, in ourselves um, reaching up out, right. <laughs> out of the mire and the muck, right? And, and this is what's really funny. It's like nobody would let him work originally with like normal people. And so he actually, most of his work was done with schizophrenics. So his worldview works if you're talking about schizophrenics. <laughs> this id, right? The idea of an id, an ego, and it's, it's trying to make its way and... Right, he talks. He talks a lot about the, the Ubermensch, the Superman. If the, that person who perfects himself, if he can, can hold his desires in check, 
what he what you get is the Superman, mm -hmm. and the Superman is able to overcome everyone and everything. And this went, was what went into Hitler. Hitler thought he was the Übermensch. He thought he was the Superman, and and he wanted a superior race, right? If we get rid of all um, of the archaic, uh, what, what was that word you just used a minute ago? If, if you get rid of all the uh, primeval stuff inside man, you can perfect him. That's why they wanted the Aryan race. Okay, so he, he that's Freud. And, and for him, it starts in, in the intellect, in the id, in the ego. Now, what was Marx? He came along and he had a system for both economics and history. That was bottom. The arc of history tends toward justice because people are fundamentally good in his eyes. That means that if, you, if people are fundamentally good, you just have to restrict everything outside of them that constricts them, including including economic systems and that. They they'll pursue the free. They'll pursue all of the good things that they want to pursue, um, and if they are God over themselves, then they can pursue. Right, they can pursue whatever they want. Right. Yeah. So he, he his thing applies to sociology, squiggle, and in a, in a view of history. So society to him, culture, was this thing that man created in order to control people. Okay. So the only reason you're not in control is because you were born. Uh, into this system. So if we, if we got rid of the system, we free everyone, then nobody is beholden to anyone above them. Okay? So it is very bottom-up. Right? The proletariat. Like, we're, it's going to be the working class people who rule the world. Well, what happens if you get rid of all the rich people and the, the poor people take over? Like, what happened in Russia? Well, the poor people become the rich people. And, and you, I mean, like, you have the same hierarchical structure, it's just you have different people holding all the strings. So his whole system, though, um, was the haves and the have-nots and, and reconciling this idea. Now, what we have with things like BLM is they've turned this in, instead of an economic um, haves and have-nots, it's race, it's racial Marxism. So um, Nietzsche, then, he's the one who came along and said that there are no moral absolutes. There are no absolutes, in, there's, there is no, um, there's nothing outside of ourselves to judge whether what we're doing is good or bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if, if you and I have a, um, a dispute, there is no outside. There's nothing higher than us. So we gotta just come the fisticuffs. So what's really interesting is he he was also a person who who he argued that we should get rid of um, people who were weak-minded, wheelchair-bound, invalids, and retards and. Um, he actually became an invalid. So, so he, by, before he died, became a person that they pushed around in a wheelchair who couldn't speak because he had strokes and stuff. So he became the very thing he, he wanted everybody else to get rid of. But do you think he was advocating for getting rid of himself? No, no of course not. I don't think so. So these guys are the ones who came along and, create, and created this paradigm. It's all based on Darwin. But what they did is they just took Darwin's ideas and they applied it to various uh, fields of study and giving man this comprehensive worldview, this bottom-up worldview. Because uh, now, what are some examples that you see of this world paradigm, this worldview in modern, in our modern setting? This self-determinant, bottom-up. Well, BLM. BLM, yes. Well, just the whole roots of feminism. Oh, nice. Tell us more. Um, 
Well, they're just the threat of eugenics is so strong. Mm -hmm. No one ever wants to acknowledge it. But that was the basis of the first wave of feminism, is these women who didn't want to be married, didn't want to raise their kids, and, and didn't want poor, really black women to yeah. have children either. Yep. Because then that would, that was more numbers against their own children who, even though they didn't want them, still wanted them to succeed. Wanted them to succeed. There you go. Yeah, because I mean, this is an argument. I just, uh, I want, it was a family member. Their argument was how unpack, um, where we are not compassionate because we want these people to grow up in a, in a life of poverty. I mean, you just want, you just want them to suffer. Like, you just care about, like, you, like, the whole argument against people who are, are pro life is that we don't actually care about people. Right, you just want to you want to talk about this issue, but what do you? So then, this is what they say. Well, what are you doing for poor people? What are you doing for women like fatherless uh, homes where they don't have any? They don't have a dad there. It's just mom. What are you doing for these kids living in poverty? What are you doing to these kids that are in the foster care system? Are you a foster care parent? And as if that's some sort of argument, right? That that works against us. When really that argument has all of its roots in feminism because it came out of the prohibition when men were drinking too much and beating up on their wives, so the women were like, fine, we'll tell the men what to do. Yeah. And while we're telling the men what to do, because we're voting now, let's <laughs> do all the other things. Right. Anything yeah. you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. The sibling well, song. we just don't, we don't need you. But then, then that is a slow roll into. Yeah. Yeah, and so the breakdown of the family, but uh, the church was doing all that stuff. Right. So then the women were like, uh, the women actually, by saying we don't need you, created the government. Like we need the government to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And this then is, that, and yeah. Then, yeah. And then so there. Social the so the social gospel, gospel, right? We're supposed to take care of the poor. We're supposed to take care of the marginalized. We're, we're we are. We're supposed to do all these things. Mm -hmm. Um. But. Are we, we were until the government took over. Yeah, but what does taking care of poor people mean, right? It, there are there are some people who live in the park. Um, I've I've been coming here now steadily for three years. They still live in the park. They've lived in the park for three years. Um, the police officers will go out there and they say, "Hey, listen, um, we 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 can get you into a hotel and we'll get you into rehab and we'll help you find housing, but you have got to give up the drugs." It's not going to happen. Right, and and so it's like right now this this idea that if we gave everyone all these homeless people in Seattle, they're built they're going to build them these single unit homes, mm -hmm. as if the problem is they're homeless, and if you just give them a house, suddenly they'll be able to, mm -hmm. right? Because you take away all these the moral absolutes, you take away personal responsibility, you take away the nuclear family, you take away all the structure to society that, that there is a morally you ought to have a father and mother in a home that's functioning. The parents teaching the kids how to be citizens in the world. You take all that stuff away, and, and you have just these people. It's like just giving them a home is suddenly not going to, right? What, what's going to happen to the homes? What's going to happen to the people living in the homes? And, and the people that are homeless out here, it's not, uh, right? So this idea that we have to do all these things, social gospel things. Let's just go and give away all of our money. Let, let's, um, one of the worst things around here is actually this church down the street. They give they uh, they set up this thing on Friday nights where they feed all these homeless people. 
and they give away all this stuff. And, and I, I'm telling you, it's awful. And here's why. Because they, there's no discernment of any kind as to what kind of people they are, where they come from. So suddenly, on like Thursday night, the area here gets flooded with homeless people from all over the region. And they commit crimes, and they do drugs, and they steal things. And, it, it's, and they come for this to feed off of this free stuff. Freebie stuff. And then they go away. It's like, and you know who comes every week? The same people. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what are you doing for these people? What, what are you doing? Right? Enabling, um, enabling there. Yeah, so when I got involved with uh, Cops and Clergy, the first thing they asked me is, you, you're not going to set up any sort of, like, center where you're giving away things, right? You're not going to give away tents, are you? Um, because in the wintertime now, that they don't want us doing a coat drive to give away free coats. They, they have all the resources, and they attach it to get off the streets and stop doing trucks. Mm-hmm. Because they want... To, some structure to these people's lives, right? right? Yeah. So, so the social gospel is this idea that, that you can you can uh, save people by taking care of economic and um, personal, right? If we, if we give them a house and we give them money, if we give them health care, they'll be fine. We'll that only them. makes sense if you don't believe in a spiritual reality or in like a, a higher meaning than just yeah. your physical self. Yeah, because there's a, a helpful book um, called uh, When Helping Hurts. <laughs> and they talk about different kinds of poverty. Um, so there's social poverty, spiritual poverty, spiritual poverty, uh, and economic. There might be one more, but I can't remember. Okay? So somebody might have no money. Um, but they also have no purpose in life. They also have no, no social structure. They have nobody. So if you're going to go and help, you have to identify which one of these you're helping. Sometimes it's all of them. Mm-hmm. And this isn't going to help them if these two, if they're still socially right. um, in poverty and spiritually in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is what the social gospel gets wrong mm-hmm. all the time. Now, the other, I mean, the other thing, too, is, you know, what I don't want to... Like during the famine in Ireland in the 1840s, they, the Catholic Church said, okay, if you repent, if you come to Mass and you convert, we'll feed you. <laughs> and, and I mean, people are literally dying in the road from starvation. And so, like, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not like, oh, if you come to this church service and you get a little social structure in your life, then we'll give you some food. That's not necessarily it. But what we have is the social gospel in America, where if we just handle the economic poverty, Right? Fine, let's just give them needles and let them do drugs. Just whatever. But we'll give them a place to do it and a house to do it in, and it'll be great. <laughs> and how is that working out? No. <laughs> and and this, this paradigm um, it, it is everywhere. Because you get all this weird stuff, you know, like um, these, the four horsemen. You get their ideas, you mix it with social gospel stuff, and it's just like embedded in the government's view of itself. Right? Churches don't have hospitals anymore. Churches don't have schools anymore. Churches don't have food banks anymore. Churches don't do these things. Because they're doing it so well, the government's like, oh, this really works, so let's take it over. Yeah, totally. And, and now, right, the church, we're, we're not just the building, we say, but aren't we just the building? Right? I mean, aren't we just the building and the Sunday service? Actually, yes. Most churches, that's really all they are. Because all of that other stuff that we used to do has been taken away from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that whole story is, is a sad one. But it, it, our teeth have been taken out. Like our purpose has been taken away. 
Um, we've allowed it too. And we've allowed it. <laughs> we've allowed it. So one more thing that he talks about in this chapter is the difference between induction and deduction. Do you guys know the difference between mm -hmm. these? Induction and deduction. Like one starts with the premise and works its way from there. One assumes the premise and goes back. Yeah. Something like yeah. So um, Platonic or Christian thought is deductive. It begins with a priori assumptions that must be accepted as givens before logical thought can begin. So really, it's kind of a top down. Like yeah. Here's your uh, yep. We're given the absolutes. Here's the Ten Commandments. Now work it out. Right now, make a now. These are the assumptions. We we believe that there is a God. We believe He has revealed Himself, that He has made an, a world of order, and therefore we can science now functions within that. Okay, so um, deduction starts with assumptions. Induction, there are no assumptions. You're just looking at facts. You're weighing. You're measuring. You're smelling. You're tasting. Um, you're you're studying. And then you go to conclusions. You make conclusions. Now, what the, the, the modern paradigm believes, it does everything by induction. Mm. Okay, the, the Christian worldview has to have, it has to be deduction. We, we start with things. I, I believe so that I know. Um, you, you all believe, right, when you were little kids, your mother told you what red was, and you believed her before you knew it. And God comes and he says, there is a, there is a moral right and a moral wrong. You're made in my image, and there are certain things that we believe that we come to know are really true. Okay, there's assumptions we just are born with that we work out. Um, the thing is, does, does the modern world really work by induction? Not really. They start with the assumption there is no God, or material world is all there is. Yeah, like, so Weird take how they, uh, miracles. Miracles are impossible, they say, because there's no spiritual world. Well, mm -hmm. you're, not, you're not measuring anything. You're just, right. you're starting with assumptions that there are no there's no spiritual there is no spiritual <laughs> and so they can't they can't fit uh, miracles into their worldview uh, similarly right there's no out like uh, you have Pol Pot and you have uh, Marx and there they are debating and, and there is no absolute to determine who's right or who's wrong mm -hmm. okay I mean in, in, in this modern paradigm why is Hitler bad he's not it's impossible Right? I mean, you, you have to assume that there's, and, and that's why the, the, the phrase that is always used in our circles, by what standard? By what standard are you saying that is true? Um, this, this is the argument I was having recently, I mentioned earlier, right? There ought not to be any poor people, the person says. Why? Why? Well, it just, it's, it, 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 does, it's, it shouldn't happen. Well, based on what? Like, where does this, right? And, and this is why I think the way that Lewis deals with things he understands the modern paradigm as a bottom-up. He understands the thinkers that are assumed, right? The, the ideas that are assumed. And he, and he doesn't buy this, that it's just pure induction. And so he's always dealing with people's assumptions. And in his, all of his arguments, problem of pain, mere Christianity, he starts with, let's talk about your assumptions. Let's yeah. talk about the things that you think you know already. And that's, right, you're never going to convince a person that the blue truck is actually red Unless you go back and deal with, well, where did, where did this idea of blue come from? What is blue? What is red? <laughs> like, let, let's talk about the things you're already thinking before we get to, get to the truck. Yeah. One of the things I remember from, I think it was Mere Christianity, is he said there were like two precepts of human nature. 
Yeah. And he explains them and goes, I can't continue until you accept these premises about human nature. Right. None of the rest of this is going to make sense. So I, and I think the two were one, like, we have natural inclinations, we have like moral inclinations to do things and not to do things. Yeah. But two, we often fail. <laughs> and that, those are like the two fundamental things about human nature. And if right. we can't accept that, then like, you know, we don't need savings from anything, so it also doesn't make sense. Basically. Yeah, totally. So. Yeah, and I mean, and that, and that's he he argues that way, and that's what I want us to learn, right? Yeah, we have to understand what the modern paradigm is. It's this bottom-up version based on these particular thinkers that if you disprove them, you disprove the whole thing. It's a house of cards. Yeah. So today we need to explain why people do need a savior. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't think they do. Yeah, and and but what do you need to convince them of before you give them the good news? Hey guys. They're sinners. <laughs> not right here. Okay, we're trying to have a box. Why don't you guys go out there? Yeah. Okay? But not in the hallway, hallway. <laughs> <laughs> like, here, here, here's an example. It's a perfect example. People need a savior, okay? They do. But, but what do you, so you go to a person and you're like, hey man, you need to be saved. And they're like, saved from what? Right. I'm, I'm a perfectly good person. Right. Right? Um, and, and especially now, like, what people think are good is good. <laughs> Right, there's this argument now about vasectomies. If men got mandatory vasectomies when they're in their teens, we wouldn't have so many abortions. This is like an argument that was just presented to me. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, so you want to go with genital mutilation? And that, that was awesome because the person was really set off by that. And I was like, well, that's what you're doing. You're, 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 you're changing the genitals in order to enjoy yourself. That's what genital mutilation is. Like, and you're forcing it on little kids like a bunch of Muslims. And like that part, like they could not handle that because you 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 pulled the curtain back on this scientific way that they were talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's just like it, these conclusions that people are coming to as to what we ought to do in the world. Um, it, it's like you start to, I mean, it doesn't take long. You start, it, it is a total house of cards. Why do you think you should you ought to be able to have as much sex as you want without any responsibility? Like, let's talk about that. Where does that idea come from? And, and so, I, what I find fascinating is people need the bad news. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not, let, forget the good news. Let's talk about the bad news. Yeah. Um, people think that, uh, yeah, I mean, attacking the underlying assumptions is so important. And, and what I find is that it's, you know, knowing what we're talking, like, um, it's like, um, assuming that the Bible is not the word of God. Let's go with that for a second. So, you, so you're arguing, like, all right, there is a moral absolute. There is this standard that was given to us. It is top-down, not bottom-up. Oh, well, you know, so how, do you, how well do we all know the evidential stuff that goes into proving that the scriptures are, in fact, worthy of our time? Because... Like, this is one of those areas where I find Christians are like, yeah, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Well, where did the Bible come from? Um, how was it written? Who wrote it? Um, even this idea now that I'm talking about this Deuteronomistic history, like, um, is, that, is that really where it came from? I mean, did, <laughs> were there later prophets who took a whole bunch of books that we don't know about anymore and compiled them into this one history that was then handed down? Uh, one of the, the examples he uses in here is... Um, um, yeah, the, the pe- some people look at the scriptures, say Matthew 24, and they say, okay, this was written long after 70 AD, 
well after the apostles. The apostles didn't really write this. It's impossible because there's no way that you can predict what's going to happen. Right? There's no way that somebody can make a prophetic statement that then later becomes true. So there's no way that these scriptures were written when you say they're written. They were written much later than that, after the events occurred, because it's impossible. So then somebody finds in a cave, right? There's this whole German school of Enlightenment um, text criticism that developed around this idea that there's no miracles because there's no prophetic word. And then somebody finds in a cave a scrap of Matthew um, that they can date to a particular time that is the scrap that tells them, right, that disproves this entire school of thought. Like, they, like the German professors literally shut the shop down and left because there was nothing left to say. And, you know, did, did that, that's the second time something like that's happened. They literally found and dated this one section of text that disproved this idea that you can't, it's not prophetic. Now, we, we know that you can make a prophetic word. Well, how can someone make a prophetic word? What goes into that? So, but, but even this idea of textual criticism, I, I think we don't know nearly as much about it as we should. And, and these are the kinds of things that I think we needed to defend, because if we say by what standard, we have to know as much as we can about the standard. Does that make sense? Like this, we have to know way more about this if this is what we're going to argue. Because people come to us and they say all kinds of stupid stuff, and you're like, by what standard are you coming up with that? And you're like, well, the scriptures. <laughs> and then, like, I, I've, I've had this happen where people are like, well, don't you know? And then they start to tell me something about it. I have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't know how to disprove what they're saying. Um, and, and, like, yeah, the, the manuscript traditions, as they call it, is, is an area that a lot of modern evangelicals ought to know more about. Um, can you guys think of something else like that? Well, what are some other standards that we have besides the Bible? That's the number one. Some, uh, some of history supports. Yeah. Yeah, like archaeological evidence, you mean? Yeah, like, I mean, and it's happening all the time. Like, they, they've done this to more than just the Bible, right? Um, the, the text um, invented Homer. Homer didn't write the text. So they go back and they, they, they make all these lengthy arguments about how it was oral tradition and there was no person named Homer, there was no person named Shakespeare, and they explain using the text a lot. Well, then somebody goes along and finds Troy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they find out that the story wasn't just made up um, typologically to tell some, to explain polit- politics and things that were going on over a long period of time. There was actually this war, there was actually this place, and somebody wrote a poem about it, um, explaining it from the point of view of the gods. Like, and, and so this, this archaeology archaeology is so important to these kinds of things. Like they just discovered, they believe, the, the site of what, uh, Gomorrah? Mm-hmm. Sodom and Gomorrah, did you guys hear this? No. no. So they've dug down in the ground, and they determined that at some point, and they, and they place it in history about where it ought to be, there was a meteor that exploded at exactly the right distance from the ground to melt everything underneath it. Wow. So they, they, they're like, everything, they, they figured out the temperature at which everything had melted. And they just dug down deep enough to find it. And so now all these archaeologists and scientists are working on this, that, yeah, there was a meteor that came out of the sky, and it, and it, and it didn't hit the Earth, which would have, you know, create, been a bigger problem. It exploded at just the right place to, wow. to pour sulfur down, like something like sulfur down on them, and melt their faces off. Wow. <laughs> like, uh... 
Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like, and you're like, yeah, baby. And and so like, I was reading it, and I, I, I'm like, yeah, this like this feeds my faith because now I'm going to go out and be like, people who think these stories are nonsense. Um, it's like the idea of like, if you look into, can a person be swallowed by a fish and live for three days in there? Like, like I understand it happened. It's a miracle. But how did, how did it happen? Right? I mean, the water became wine because he said, right, he, he, he spoke it. But how does that miracle actually work? Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are absolutely destroyed. Well, how did the miracle actually work? Right? Because it's him acting upon natural forces. And you can actually, yeah, you can see and explain how it works. And it bolsters our faith. Yeah, what do you mean? Keep going. Um, well, Europe had what was called a lost summer. Where yeah. Two volcanoes simultaneously exploded, and it covered enough of the sun's rays that it actually didn't warm up in Europe. They couldn't grow crops, so they call it the lost summer. Well, you take that observation and you can deduce God flooded the earth, but by means of flooding the earth, the waters also came up. So volcanoes were exploding while the earth is being covered with water all over the earth yeah, because the earth was covered. So all that ash cooled down the planet. Right. So then you got an ice age immediately after I see. the flood. And then when the ash dissipated, it warmed back up and we got a second mini flood of rushing water to carve out more. Nice. <laughs> Dr. Patrick Neary. Yeah, cool. went to Yellowstone. He's a Christian geologist. He's retired. His whole mission is to teach kids why the flood specifically well, yeah. yeah. happened. happened. Yeah, and I mean, I, I, it's like everywhere you go, we were at Crater Lake, it's the same thing. And they're talking about like local floods 300 million years ago or something. <laughs> and like even Gracie's like, this is dumb. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Nuri is great because he was talking about how, like, in the in, near the equator, you get all these canyons that mm -hmm. aren't glacially carved. It's yeah. from the flood. Right. But in the northern hemisphere, you don't see that rushing water carving out as much. It's from the glaciers mm -hmm. formed during the ice age, carved some of it out, and then when they melted, they carved. The, they yeah the yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. And that's right. why you have rocks in Yellowstone that are from Canada. See what I'm saying? By what, by what standard every day? Mrs. Amy's laying it down. So, you know, reading things about this in order to answer questions is really, really, really important. Because, this, because we're dealing with people who think that they have no, no assumptions. But they have them. And, and if we're going to challenge them on this, we have got ourselves to know what the standard is. Like, this is like constitutional as well, right? People don't know what the Constitution says. Every, like... I was told that um, when I said that, uh, yeah, I was teaching someone about the fact that the law is king. And they're like, you just, you just made that up. They were literally like, I, they thought I made that up like right now to justify my support of Donald Trump. I'm like, well, that's full of all kinds of crazy errors. But this idea comes from somewhere, right? The, the, the king is the law. The law is king. This is an idea that they came up with. Do you know why? Because the kings used to chop everybody's head off. And some Protestants were like, what if, like in the Old Testament, we had a standard that was higher than all the people that came from God? What if we had a standard like that and that's the king? 
Um, because if you go back and you read Deuteronomy 17, especially 13 and 17, and just whatever, read the whole book, you find out that the law is king. It is. Like, that's the thing that you're supposed to appeal to. Um, and, and so now you get to the Constitution, people don't even understand how it's supposed to function. Like, you can't just have men stand up and declare things, right? I feel like I'm watching The Office. I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I declare mandates. And you're like, that's not how laws work. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, understanding how the standard, more, as much as we can, learning about the standards, political standards, theological standards, biblical standards, so that um, when we're addressing people, we can actually give them some, some substance, okay? And, and not just assuming, this is also why C.S. Lewis is awesome. He just doesn't accept it. He doesn't take the bait. I'm not going to accept your paradigm. I'm not going to accept your assumptions. What, what I will is dismantle your assumptions. And once you dismantle people's assumptions, um, there's really no argument. I, Greg Bonson was famous for this. There was like a debate where the guy in the debate clearly did not understand what Bonson was saying. It's just like ripping his presuppositions apart. And later... The guy went back and watched the debate and was like, oh, and then wrote a letter to Bonson and said, you're right. I didn't even, like, I didn't even understand what you were doing. And what you were doing was undermining the, un the assumptions my entire argument was based upon. Mm. So he wants to just argue about the truck. Bonson wants to argue about the knowledge that existed before you came to determine what was going on <coughs> with the truck. And, and I think that's increasingly how we ought to do it. Um, not take the bait. Um, not accept the assumptions that people are making. Right, like, <laughs> like you know, chrome, like chromosomes. I mean, I was talking to Ben Merkel this last week about the advertising that NSA has been doing because they've just been off the charts. They make these videos to promote their college. Awesome. And they, they're yeah. like, oh my god, I want to go there. Barn burners, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I asked him about it, and he goes, "Listen, man, it's low hanging fruit. Like our our last ad was two plus two equals four, and people were lighting their hair on fire. <laughs> it's like." We, if you like, there is a boy, and there, they had this other one they did where there's bathrooms, and they, they talked about the fact their students know which bathroom to use <laughs> because they study science, and, and it's like that's how low hanging fruit it is right now. Yeah. And so this is one of the many reasons we live in a good age because it's like two plus two equals four. A boy is a boy, and a girl is a girl. It's like this stuff is super basic, and and as, and as long as we joyfully and cheerfully talk about the standard, talk about the assumptions, get people to open their eyes. I think we can do a lot more good now. It's not just about going door to door and getting people to say a spiritual prayer. It's like there's this whole worldview that we have to tear down that is super flimsy, <laughs> that, that exists on very thin ice. And, and it's very easy to punch a hole in it and let the whole thing sink and, and, and rescue people from this. And I think it's a good time. And that's why studying the Lewis is so important right now, because he teaches us how to fight. I, I mean, the people he had to deal with were way smarter than <laughs> and And... You know, they had a lot more of the same assumptions that he did. You know, now it's like I, I talk to people, I don't, I don't even understand where the, the crazy ideas they have come from. And it's like, yeah, let's just start pulling this apart and seeing what is going on. Um, yeah, it's most of the people we talked to now didn't read Plato. <laughs> yeah. The education standards have slipped a little. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, you guys have any questions? Go fight win. Go fight win.